0: Holy Spirit, you are welcome here today. You are needed here today. I pray that you would quicken the words that will be spoken today, that you would make them receptive to our ears and to our hearts, and that above all, this message would come through as nothing but a source of encouragement and hope as we move forward in our lives, proclaiming your goodness. I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, today we are continuing our discussion of the end times, along with a look into our ultimate destination, or in another way of putting it, our life after death. We will address a number of key topics, And I hope that more of your questions on these topics will be answered today. Though perhaps not answered to your complete satisfaction, but answered enough so that you will at least consider the argument that I have been putting forth through this series of messages. To summarize my position very briefly, I can best be described as a partial preterist. That is my viewpoint of eschatology. In other words, I believe that the vast majority of prophecies contained in both the Old and New Testaments have already been fulfilled. That includes the Olivet Prophecy given by Jesus himself in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. It also includes the vast majority of the prophecies of the book of Revelation. I have argued throughout this series that all these prophecies were fulfilled in the events leading up to and culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 70 AD by the Roman army. I believe that the only prophetic events yet to occur is the visible physical return of Jesus to this earth, and also to the time when the kingdom of God will be in all its glory fully consummated, at which point God himself, in all his glory, will be ever-present among us. That is my position, and I believe wholeheartedly that it by far makes the best sense out of end-time prophecies in general, and those of Jesus in particular, both in his Olivet Discourse, as well as his revelation given to John and recorded in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Of course, there are other viewpoints concerning the end times and the eventual return of Jesus Christ that are and have been held by dedicated, Jesus loving Christians over the many years since he returned to the Father. Some might have a good argument for their position, I don't know, but others in my opinion, do not. But it's important to enter into dialogue with those whose position differs from ours. It's a way of learning and growing. And differing positions should never be a source of division among us. For do any of us really know how it's all going to work out step by step? The best that we can do is examine the evidence we have in the Word of God using sound biblical interpretation, along with Holy Spirit-led wisdom and maybe even some common sense. And then come to our own conclusions, conclusions that would make the best sense of all the data that is currently before us. That is what I have been attempting to do with you throughout this series. I pray that my arguments have been sound and clear enough that you would seriously consider them as viable. That they do, in fact, make the best sense of all the data. That they are, in fact, good biblical exegesis. The last time I entered into a brief dialogue with premillennial dispensation and how they see the end times unfolding, which they believe will occur in our near future. I do wonder, though, how many who have held to that position are beginning to question it. After all, they have been teaching about the imminent rapture of the church for around 50 years now. I also remember the teaching that the super sign that the end times, the end of days, the end of history was upon us was that Israel had become a nation again back in 1948, and that within a generation we would see the rapture the Great Tribulation, the rise of the Antichrist, and the return of Jesus. Believe it or not, that super sign was over 73 years ago. Now, what does our common sense tell us about all that? Perhaps that maybe they've got something wrong, maybe even a lot wrong. All the failed predictions about the imminent rapture and the return of Christ What should our common sense be telling us about that? That maybe their interpretation of the prophetic scriptures has come from, first of all, by believing, even if with all sincerity, a wrong doctrine, which has then led to the false assumptions, teachings, and predictions, which have arisen simply because all of it is so far removed from the proper context that is so critical as we study and interpret any and all of the scriptures. Throughout this series of messages, we have been putting the book of Revelation, as well as Jesus' Olivet Discourse, into its proper context. As we have done this, do not these scriptures make far more sense to us We don't have to come up with bizarre explanations and interpretations of Scripture, such as, you know, Jesus didn't really mean His contemporaries when He said in Matthew 24, 34, Assuredly, or other translations have it, Amen, Amen, or truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And that he actually meant that the physical race known as the Jews would not pass out of existence until all these events took place. Or that he really meant that the generation that actually begins to see these events take place, well off in the future, of course, that generation would then see all those events fulfilled. Or how about some other bizarre explanations, such as one that's used to interpret... Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, which says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. So here in the very first verse of Revelation, we learn that this book is a revelation of Jesus and from Jesus that comes directly from God himself. And from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, we know that Jesus is the truth. There is no deceit in him, for it is completely against his nature. Verse 1 then continues, which God gave him to show him things which must shortly take place. And then in verse 3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And their explanations will then go something like this. Well, God didn't mean that all this was about to happen then, but that when it did start, it would all happen quickly. Or perhaps they might say, you know, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says that with the Lord... One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Their argument then proceeds to say that God's time is different than ours. So shortly and near doesn't mean the same to him as it does to us. They will use this argument, even though every other time those words are used in the New Testament, they mean exactly what they say. And besides all that, If the Holy Spirit actually wanted to mean something else in those scriptures, there were other Greek words he could have inspired to be written down which would have conveyed those exact meanings. Explanations such as the ones I've just given you usually arrive from believing false assumptions, which can then lead to bizarre and erroneous conclusions And this can happen even among the very intelligent and dedicated Christians. You've probably all heard of C.S. Lewis. He was a prolific Christian author who wrote such notable and powerful works as The Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, and The Great Divorce, just to name a few. He held academic positions in English literature at both Oxford and Cambridge universities. His radio broadcast during World War II on the subject of Christianity brought him wide acclaim. C.S. Lewis was indeed one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Christian apologist of his time. And yet this great man of literature and defender of the Christian faith wrote this in an essay called The World's Last Night, that was originally published in 1952. And I quote C.S. Lewis, Say what you like. The apocalyptic beliefs of the first Christians have proved to be false. It is clear from the New Testament that they all expected the second coming to be in their own lifetime. And worse still, they had a reason, and one which you will find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. He shared and indeed created their delusion. He said in so many words, this generation shall not pass away till all these things come to pass. And he was wrong. He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anyone else. It certainly is the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Yet how teasing also that within 14 words of it should come the statement, but of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. The one exhibition of error and the one confession of ignorance. End of quote. Amazing. In a way, it's almost completely unbelievable that such an intelligent Christian apologist would write in no uncertain terms that Jesus, on the subject of eschatology, was both flat-out wrong and ignorant. What? Come on now, Professor Lewis. Jesus, wrong and ignorant? Where did that belief arise from? Well, he obviously held and sincerely believed some wrong doctrine or teaching about the supposed end of the world and Jesus' second coming. And so then he drew out false assumptions of what that would be like and so came to some very bizarre, false, and almost blasphemous conclusion. In this one area, C.S. Lewis had it all wrong. Somewhere along the way, he did not use proper context in forming his interpretation of Scripture. It's sad, but true. And it's the reason we've been emphasizing context and common sense when we study the Scriptures. Not doing this is what still leads many astray today, just as it did with C.S. Lewis, in their own study of Scriptures. And so then their conclusions about the end times. In my opinion, many Christians in general come up with a favorite doctrine or teaching from somewhere, one that they really like, and then they go to the Bible and look for any scriptures that might be used to back up their position. No matter if they have to twist or take the verse out of context or add meaning to it in order to make it say what they want it to say. And I believe that this is especially true of premillennial dispensation. So next time, I will briefly look at some scriptures that are used to teach the doctrine of the rapture, of the church, which is essential to their position on the end times, and show you that those scriptures don't teach the rapture at all, but instead are referring to a doctrine, a belief that has been held dear to the church one that has been taught and that has been a great source of hope and encouragement to all Christians since the time of Christ. One might also describe it as a major step, perhaps the major step, to realizing our ultimate destiny. But before we get to that, we need to discuss what is not our final destination, what is not our ultimate destiny. We need to do it because unfortunately... It has become the prevalent and highly popular conception of life after death that's within Christianity today. And in order to do that, I want to spend the rest of today's message explaining a statement I made in my last message when I proclaimed that heaven is not your ultimate destiny. I imagine that statement probably surprised many of you. The heaven that I was speaking of is the place where all true-believing Christians go after death to spend eternity. Whether it's actually our soul or spirit or spiritual body or all of the above is probably dependent on your own personal beliefs or the teacher that you've been listening to. It's heaven as in that place where we will live in a beautiful mansion on a crystal-clear lake, up in heaven's mountains, with an unbelievable, gorgeous view out of every window of that mansion. A place where we will be reunited with all our family and friends. This heaven of our imagination would be, in essence, a perpetual party and gatherings with those loved ones. A place of pure enjoyment for us. A place where all our dreams of how life should really be will come true. Now, you would have to agree that this is the concept of heaven that so many today hold near and dear. One of my favorite all-time movies is Field of Dreams, starring Kevin Costner. It's a movie that revolves around baseball and major league players that have been dead for many years, but come back alive and in their prime years of life to play baseball once again on this beautiful baseball field that Kevin Costner's character, Ray Kinsella, has built out of what once was his cornfield. As the movie neared its end and all the baseball players disappeared once again into the cornfield that outlined the outfield grass, there was left only one player, the catcher, who, as it turned out, was Ray's father, who had come back in the prime of his life, and so now was even much younger than Ray himself. But he still possessed all of his memories from his life, as we will eventually find out. Ray, of course, recognizes him immediately, and as they begin to talk, Ray's father, John, thanks Ray for building the field, and then asks him this question is this heaven? Ray responds, no, this is Iowa. Then John says, I could have sworn this was heaven. Then Ray asks his father a question. Is there a heaven? And his father looks at him, smiles, tells him, oh yeah, it's where dreams come true. The movie then ends with Ray, and Ray and his father had been estranged at the time of his death. It ends with Ray asking his father, Dad, want to have a catch? And young John, his father, says, yeah, I'd like that. That movie turned 30 years old this year, and I've watched it numerous times, and I have to admit there are still times that I get teary-eyed at that ending. The point here being, though, that this is a popular conception of heaven and what it must be like. But what does the Bible have to say about heaven? Does our conception of heaven line up with the Word of God? We will look and try to answer those questions today. But before we do, let me be clear in saying that I'm not saying that heaven isn't a place where your dreams will come true. I'm not saying that heaven isn't a place where all your imaginations about heaven won't be realized. I still have imaginations about heaven. Most of you have probably remember Perry Como. I really enjoy his Christmas music. He is far and away the best of the best. And I start singing those songs right along with Perry well before the Christmas season has even begun to begin. And as many of you know, if you have been anywhere near me during worship, I have no ability to sing whatsoever. As they say, I couldn't carry a note in a dump truck. So one of my imaginations about heaven is singing before a packed concert hall, all those great Christmas songs with, of course, Perry Como himself. Will this ever happen? Don't know but I would never limit God to what He can or cannot do. What I am saying here today is that your perception of heaven may need to be rethought and enlarged and to become a place far, far greater and more fulfilling than your present picture of heaven will allow. Now let's turn to the Scriptures and hear what they have to say about heaven there is really only one word that is translated heaven in both the Hebrew and Greek languages. The Hebrew word is shameh, and it appears 419 times in the Old Testament. It is translated heaven 398 times and air 21 times. The Greek word for heaven is urenos, and it appears a total of 284 times in the New Testament and it's translated heaven 268 times, as air 10 times, and as sky 5 times. The definition of both these words is basically the same. If you look it up, you will find these words can mean at different times the air, the sky, the firmament or the expanse of space surrounding the earth where the sun, the moon, and all the stars exist. Of course we know that the word "heaven" also refers to that realm where God abides. So what these words actually refer to is dependent upon the context in which it is used. So once again, we see the importance of context as we study and try to correctly interpret scriptures. Since the definition of the Greek and Hebrew words for heaven do not help us in our quest to know what heaven is really like in terms of that possible destination after our present physical life is over, let's turn briefly to the scriptures themselves to see what they have to offer us on this subject. I will tell you from the start that they tell us very little, if anything, about heaven actually being our ultimate destination or what it will be like if and when we get there. Let's begin our study at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we all know that God is the creator, that he made all things. We know that he is the originator of all the creation. The physical creation of which we are a part, as well as the supernatural realm which is separate and different from ours, but which at times intersects with ours in a way that results in some amazing happenings, such as visits from angels and Jesus, or perhaps through hearing the audible voice of God, all of which are reported in the Bible, as well as from men and women throughout the ages up to our present time. That supernatural creation includes the angels, and perhaps other creatures we read about in the Bible. So is heaven in the sense of it being the realm where God abides part of his creation? I believe it is, since we know that only God is eternal, the only one who has no beginning and end. And now as we continue in the Old Testament, we get a picture of heaven In Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 3, where the prophet Isaiah tells us, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As a little sidebar here, I find it interesting that the angels say the earth is filled with God's glory. Notice they don't say heaven is filled with the glory of God, although for without a doubt it is, but here they specifically say the earth a part of God's physical creation, is indeed filled with His glory. I wonder what they are seeing that perhaps we don't see. Perhaps they are seeing more than the present and are actually seeing out into the future to the time Isaiah himself described in chapter 11 and verses 6 through 9, a passage well known to most. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fat lean together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young one shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the lord as the waters cover the sea or again perhaps the seraphim were looking ahead to the time that isaiah wrote about in chapter 2 and verses 2 through 4 now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And later, the prophet Micah quotes the same passage in its entirety and then adds onto it this verse from Micah chapter 4, verse 4. But everyone shall sit under his vine. And under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Again, the interesting part in all these scriptures, the reason I shared these is because the context of all these verses is the earth, this physical earth where you and I now live. They all do sound a lot like our conception of heaven. But these scriptures are again actually describing future life on the earth. It's something to keep in mind as we draw near to revealing our ultimate destination as well as our ultimate destiny. And keep in mind this as well that if you search the Old Testament in its entirety, you may find poetic descriptions of heaven, such as we just read in Isaiah 6, or other references to heaven as it being God's space. But to my knowledge, you will find nothing that describes it as our ultimate destination. In fact, throughout the whole history of Israel, up to and including Jesus' time, this wasn't even a concept that the Jews held. They, as a nation, were waiting for the kingdom of God to be established on this earth the time when God would indeed become king of the world and rule over the nations from Jerusalem. That was their living hope and their dream for the future. And it was so because it came directly from their holy scriptures, some of which we just read. Now let's return to our discussion of heaven from a New Testament perspective. And once again, we find that there is little, if any, support for today's popular conception of heaven as being our eternal home. There are a number of passages that most of us might think of when the concept of heaven is brought up. One passage is found in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 and 4. And here the Apostle Paul, speaking of himself, as most, if not all, commentators would agree, writes this, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I don't know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. So here Paul tells us that many years ago that he had received a vision, some kind of picture of what he calls the third heaven. What does he mean by that? As we saw earlier, the word heaven in the Greek language is used in a variety of ways. Many now believe that in Paul's mind that the first heaven would be the space where the birds fly or our atmosphere. The second heaven would then be the space where all the stars exist. And the third heaven would be where God dwells. Notice that Paul doesn't give us any sort of description of heaven here, but only that he heard inexpressible words. Nothing here to even suggest that heaven, as is regularly pictured, is our ultimate destination. As a quick side note, the word paradise that Paul uses here in the same context as the third heaven is only used three times in the Bible. Here and in Luke 23, 43, where Jesus tells one of the robbers crucified next to him that he would indeed join him in paradise. And the final mention of this word occurs in Revelation 2, verse 7, where Jesus tells the church, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. But again, no other description in any sense other than it is a place where God is dwelling. And according to Vine's Complete Expository Dictionary of the New Testament, the word paradise itself is of Persian origin from where it passed into the Greek language. It was originally used to describe the parks of Persian kings and nobles. We just saw that Jesus used it in Revelation as a reference to the Garden of Eden, for that is where the Tree of Life was originally found. So while we do have some references to it, we have no detailed description of paradise as it now exists. Another well-known verse which references heaven is found in Philippians chapter 1 verses 21 through 24. Here Paul writes, for me to live to die is gain. If I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor yet what I shall choose I cannot tell for I am hard pressed between the two having a desire to depart and be with Christ which is far better nevertheless to remain in the flesh is more needful for you so it seems somewhat clear from this passage that immediately after death our soul/spirit goes into the presence of God but what happens then we get a possible glimpse of an answer in the book of Revelation. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we read this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. Now we know that Revelation is a book full of symbols and a hyperbole, so we need to be careful what we accept as literal. But it seems to me that these souls are indeed in communication with God and that their status is now one of rest in the presence of God we do get another possible glimpse in the next chapter, Revelation chapter 7 and starting in verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here and elsewhere in Revelation, heaven also seems to be a place of constant worship of our great and awesome God. Now let's drop down and continue in verses 15 through 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more or thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them, nor any heat, for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, we should not get too dogmatic about what all this means and how it will all play out. But I think we can safely say that what we have learned about heaven as a space where God dwells is that it is the place where our souls, spirits, go immediately upon the death of our physical bodies. That for us personally, it will be a far better place to be than where we are now for Jesus is there. It is a place where we will be in the presence of God and be able to communicate with Him. It is a place where we will be able to worship God continually, and it will be a place of rest, with no physical pain, hunger, thirst. A place where all our tears and the things that cause them will be wiped away by God Himself. An awesome place, to be sure. But is this our ultimate destination? and our ultimate destiny? Or does God have something more and even greater in store for us? I am making an argument that God does indeed have something more for us. And that something is our ultimate destiny. That while the heaven we have been talking about is certainly a real place, part of God's good creation, and a place of rest and blessedness that we will go to upon our physical death, it is not our ultimate destination. It is our intermediate destination. This may be hard to believe, but there's more to our ultimate destiny than this picture of heaven, more than a field of dreams or any other vision of heaven that you have been taught and might hold dear. Far more than living in a mansion on a lake in the mountains, sipping lemonade or whatever else your favorite drink might be, by your pool on a perfect spring, summer, or fall day. Far more than even singing Christmas duets with Perry Como. All of those things and so much more, all your dreams may be included within it, but your ultimate destiny is far greater than just getting to enjoy your personal dreams. God created us for something far more than just the popular view of heaven. So now you may ask, if not from the Bible, then where does our perception of heaven, heaven being the place where our disembodied souls go after death to live in pure bliss for all eternity, Where did this conception of heaven come from? Where did it originate? And how did it develop into being the place that so many imagine and hope for where all their dreams will be realized? The answer to these questions is not a simple one or one that is clear-cut. But let me offer some possibilities. Let's begin with a man named Plato. This still-famous Athenian philosopher lived 400 years before the birth of Christ. He was the founder of the Academy, which was the first institution of higher learning in the Western world. Plato is also considered the founder of Western political philosophy. His teacher was the great philosopher Socrates, and one of his students was Aristotle. It is said, that Plato remains the most influential thinker in the history of the Western world. And his teaching on man and his conception of life after death goes something like this. He believed that man was an immortal soul, which was imprisoned in a body of flesh. He saw the material world as an illusion that it wasn't just evil that was wrong with the world, but the constant change and the decay of it. So then, according to Plato, the world is to be rejected as immaterial, and our focus should be on our own soul, preparing it for its future, which will begin at death, when the soul is released from the prison of the body into a new environment, which will be just what it always desired. So immediately after death, the soul arrives at a place called Hades, where the soul is then judged according to the person's previous behavior. The virtuous would go to the islands of the blast, which was, of course, a place of pure delight. The wicked would go to Tartarus for punishment. Does all that sound familiar to anyone? Now, that was a gross oversimplification of Plato's view of life after death but I hope you see where today's concept of heaven could have originated. Now from Plato, let's move ahead into the Middle Ages, to around the year 1300 A.D. and to the Italian poet Dante Alighieri. 1300 A.D. was around the time that he wrote the Divine Comedy. It was a three-part work which consisted of Inferno, which describes his journey through hell, and where hell is depicted as nine concentric circles of torment that is located within the earth. It is, and I'm quoting Dante here, the realm of those who have rejected spiritual values by yielding to bestial appetites or violence or by perverting their human intellect to fraud or malice against their fellow man. Dante As part of this whole work, also wrote Purgatorio and Paradiso. Paradiso, according to Wikipedia, is an allegory telling of Dante's journey through heaven. In his poem, heaven is depicted as a series of nine concentric spheres surrounding the earth. The tenth sphere is where God is. The poem represents the soul's ascent to God. Dante's Divine Comedy is widely considered one of the most important poems of the Middle Ages and the greatest literary work in the Italian language. His depictions of hell, purgatory, and heaven provide an inspiration for the larger body of Western art and literature. I bring up Plato and Dante here simply as examples of men who have had great influence on our conception of life after death, and what heaven and hell might be like. In fact, Dante's version of hell is far closer to what the vast majority of people today believe about hell than anything we read in the Bible. But that's for another message. Now, moving up to the present time, there have been a number of TV shows about heaven and angels. The Good Place with Ted Danson, Highway to Heaven with Michael Landon, and Touched by an Angel are just to name a few. And there are, of course, all kinds of books about heaven. But how much do all these influence us today? A lot, I would think. Especially so if we like the author, or maybe because the book tells us something we want to believe. But shouldn't we want to know and believe only the truth? The truth that the Word of God points us to? The truth about the end times? Shouldn't we want to know the truth about our future? The future of this world, this glorious and good creation of our loving God? Now you may be asking yourself, does it really matter how I picture heaven or the end times? Does it matter if I think heaven should be my ultimate goal and destination? Does it matter if I believe in the rapture and the coming great tribulation? After all, they're just peripheral beliefs that don't affect my salvation. And yes, it's true. They won't affect your salvation or your good standing with God. But they are not peripheral beliefs. They're important. And I will close this message with an answer. If you believe as Plato and many Christians today that this earth is corrupted, full of evil, and that God is about to destroy it and start over, after the rapture, of course. If you believe that after you die, you go to live in heaven forevermore, to never step foot on this earth again, to live in your mansion with little or no responsibilities for all eternity, if that is your primary goal, If that is your focus, and now that you're saved, you're just waiting for that moment to unfold, then you will naturally live your life on this earth in a certain way. But if you know that God has something else, something greater in mind for you, and for all his good creation which does indeed include this earth. If you knew that your ultimate destination was to be on this earth, fulfilling in glory the purpose for which you were created. If you knew that your time on this earth was to prepare you for your ultimate destiny. If you knew how important all of God's creation is to him. If you knew and truly believed what God's word tells us in First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 58. "Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If you knew all this, then you would live your life a whole different way. Imagine. Nothing that you now do for God's greater glory, for the advancement of his kingdom, will ever be wasted or for naught. God will use it both now and in the future to expand both his glory and his kingdom. What we believe and how we live our life now is important and has purpose. Your ultimate destiny is important. And we will find out what that is next time as we definitely conclude this series.